This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is Issues and Interviews. And now, here's Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Issues and Interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Great to be back with you today. Awesome guest coming up, my former New York State Assembly colleague, Joe Borelli, currently the minority leader of the New York City Council. He represented Staten Island in the Assembly, and now he represents Staten Island in the City Council, and he represents every person in the city, especially Republicans, as the leader of the Republicans in the City Council, and uh, represents people from all, all five boroughs in that capacity. And I saw him on uh, television this week, and he made an interesting point about how leftist mayors, remember we say leftist because liberal is too benign to describe the current state of most Democrats in elected office. And he made the point that leftist mayors, despite Trump, made their cities more inviting to illegal immigrants, and now they can't afford it, and it's causing massive amounts of problems, and they're looking for a federal bailout. So we're going to talk about that with my friend and former colleague, Joe Borelli. And I assure you, he'll be a great guest. Also, something in the news this week didn't get much coverage. I saw it kind of by accident. There are five living former presidents. There's President Trump, of course, who's a former president, running for president again. There's Jimmy Carter, who is 98 years old. I believe he's on hospice care. Uh, Obviously not very active anymore, but he's one of the living presidents. But the three other living presidents, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, are getting together in a charitable endeavor, and you're not going to believe who they're helping. You're not going to believe these three former leaders who combined covered 24 years as president, a quarter of a century, more than any other three people. They they helped usher in the world that we currently live in, the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. Those three men are trying to solve what they perceive to be a problem. Uh, I'm not sure it's a problem they should be tackling, but we're going to talk all about it. And, you know, as I got older, um, studied the Constitution, taught the Constitution, as a high school American history and government teacher, studied the Constitution as a law student, really uh, studied and learned and appreciated the Constitution as a practicing attorney and as an elected official and as an American who likes to speak his mind, I gained a greater appreciation of all aspects of the United States Constitution, but the First Amendment in particular. And in so many ways, the First Amendment is under siege. The press don't seem to want to defend their free press aspects of the First Amendment. If you watched, uh, if you watch any of the coverage of that silly dinner they have in Washington D.C. every year, and how that most members of the press corps that are supposed to challenge the president don't challenge the president. They're on his team. They they cover for him, and that's not just bad journalism and and uh, you know violative of of the principles of journalism. It's bad for our country, and now. Instead of just not covering the things that reflect badly on liberal policies or liberal policymakers, you're starting to see, quote unquote, journalists, members of the media, members of the press, correcting people um, and arguing with them when they should really be engaging them and getting their thoughts out. Great example this week, as I'm sure you heard, 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president as a Democrat. Some polls have him at 20%, which is pretty unbelievable. Uh, as, as many uh, liberals as possible are trying to make him seem like a sideshow or an also-ran. But there was a time that, not that long ago when anybody with the last name Kennedy uh, would automatically be a big part of a presidential campaign. They couldn't wait for John F. Kennedy Jr. to run over the years um, Prior to that, they wanted Teddy Kennedy to run. You know, he even though he had killed a woman at Chappaquiddick, which is a fact, and left her there to drown, the left still wanted Teddy Kennedy to run for president. If you recall, the 2008 presidential Democrat primary was Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama for the most part. And when Teddy Kennedy came in, Senator Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion of the Senate, blah, 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 man who killed Mary Jo Kopechny and left her to drown. Uh, to protect his political career. When he came out, not behind his old friend, Hillary Clinton, not behind the wife of the former president, Bill Clinton, when he came out for Barack Obama, Senator Barack Obama, freshman Senator Barack Obama, that was it. Game over. The Kennedy name and the Kennedy machine and the Kennedy aura carried the day in part for Barack Obama, in addition to Barack Obama's uh, very significant campaign skills. And as a result, he became the nominee, became the president, and uh, you know the rest is history. Much of it, much of it, much of it, bad history. But that's a story for another day. But now you have Robert Kennedy Jr., the eldest son of Robert F. Kennedy, slain New York State uh, U.S. Senator from New York State. Prior to that, the Attorney General, brother of the president, killed in California while running for president. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president, and he's not being taken seriously by the Democrat machine. And he's on ABC News the other day, and he's making his points. And I, I like a lot of his points. One thing he came out and said, not in this clip that I'm going to play you, but he came out and said, yeah, uh, men should compete in men's sports and women should compete in women's sports. And uh, a man who is claiming to be a woman doesn't get to compete in women's sports. That's a pretty logical position, but it's a radical position among Democrats. I'm impressed that that Robert F. Kennedy came out and took that position. And he's long been skeptical of vaccines, uh, long been skeptical of Fauci and the regime. And he made some comments as a presidential candidate. And this uh, reporter, whoever she is on ABC News, um, she she corrects him. She she gives uh, like a disclaimer. It, it kind of reminds me of the disclaimers at the end of uh, of pharmaceutical ads. And you'll see what I mean in a second. Take a listen to this. The same scientific authorities. Science is rarely static. There are very few scientific principles that are immovable. Science is dynamic. And, you know, look, I... I you, I've had I've argued over probably or I've I've litigated over 500 lawsuits. In every one of those lawsuits, there are experts, authorities on one side, and experts and authorities on the other that are saying the exact opposite thing. So no, I don't trust authority. I need to see the details. We should note that during our conversation, Kennedy made false claims about the COVID-19 vaccines. Data shows that the COVID-19 vaccines prevented millions of hospitalizations and deaths from the disease. He also made misleading claims about the relationship between vaccination and autism. Research shows that vaccines and the ingredients used for the vaccines do not cause autism, including multiple... So Kennedy makes a good point, a nonpartisan point, uh, a purely logical point that well, in, in lawsuits, you have experts on both sides, and they're both experts, and they're both uh, under oath, and they're both telling the truth, presumably, and they disagree. They come out, 
completely differently on the same subject matter. That's a good point. And she comes out and says, basically what she says, very professionally and very sternly, nope, there's only our facts, only our facts matter, only our research matters, and there cannot be a contrarian view. And I don't care that you're running for president, we're going to set the record straight. And oh, by the way, this probably helps protect our number one advertisers, the pharmaceutical industry. So you take that, you take what they basically just did, uh, fact-checked in real time, put a disclaimer on a presidential candidate's comments, even after he just made that great point that, you know, reasonable minds can disagree, and that should be it. She should have to come forth with uh, with her evidence, and he can come forth with his evidence, and then and then you find, uh, you find the truth somewhere. Or maybe you don't find the truth. You don't come to a consensus, but the viewer, the public can figure out what what they think is in reality the truth that's that should be the system not well he made lies on here and he said things that he shouldn't have been able to say blah 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 so now you have kennedy who's basically i don't i don't like to say american royalty we don't have royalty i don't i'm not a fan of royalty one of the most prominent families uh in the united states the kennedy family uh had a president in their family right there's only been 40 was there been 46 presidents and uh one of them was a kennedy they one of them was a senator the father was a big shot um, and if they can do that to him, if the press can do that to a Kennedy as a presidential candidate, what are they going to do in 2024 to Trump, who's a presidential candidate, DeSantis, who's a presidential candidate, Nikki Haley, who's a presidential candidate, the Republicans running for president? What are they going to do? Well, we know from the Twitter files, and this gets me to my overall First Amendment point, we know to the from the Twitter files that Elon Musk released after purchasing Twitter, a heroic act. I never really liked Elon Musk because I thought he was kind of a corporate welfare queen. Most of his uh, factories in the United States get a ton of ridiculous corporate welfare. But I'm willing to set that aside because the more important principle is the principle of free speech and the exposure of huge multinational corporations colluding not only with the federal government, with law enforcement and intelligence agencies of the federal government to suppress information, to suppress information about politics, about policy, about presidential candidates, about the most important things, about life and death and the impact of vaccines and the the handling of COVID and uh, war and peace and whether the United States should get involved in certain conflicts, all those things, which there are, I believe there are good points on both sides of those things. Huge multinational corporations that don't care about the United States might not even be run by Americans, are certainly not run for Americans, combining with the federal government's intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies to suppress information. And I'm, I'm going to wrap up this topic, but information suppression is voter suppression. If corporations and law enforcement intelligence agencies of our government keep us from knowing something that suppresses our ability to vote in an educated manner. And that is happening. That happened in 2020. They only are getting bolder. Elon Musk exposed that whole thing earlier this year and late last year. Who went to jail? Who who uh, who paid a price for that? Who paid a fine? Who lost their job for that? Okay, the Twitter employees lost their job because new ownership came in. But who paid a price for that? Anybody in the FBI? We still have the same FBI director. We still have the same intelligence agency heads. So why would they do it any differently? And they're only going to get better at it. They have four more years to perfect it, and they're only going to get better at it. And that's going to have a huge impact on this election. We need to be aware of that. We need to come up with a way to to fight through it. And when you have the government and a corporation suppressing the flow of information, that not only violates the First Amendment, it violates all principles of democracy. When you have the people in power, the most powerful entities in the country, in the world, censoring 
what people can say, deplatforming people, suppressing it, shadow banning people. It's a huge problem. We have to fight through it. I hope that the RNC has a has a plan for this. I'm skeptical that I do. I hope that the Trump campaign has a plan for this and to deal with this. And one thing is, is good that we, we have alternative platforms where conservatives can go, like Rumble, like other social media platforms. Trump's got his own true social Social. I have to be truthful with you. I've never been on it. And it's enough for me to manage my Twitter, Instagram, and, and Facebook right now. But and I think that's good. And we should we should definitely try to have our own, as Bongino says, our own conservative economy. But the one of the drawbacks of that is everybody who's already there is already gonna vote Republican. Everybody on true social social for the most part is already gonna vote Republican. Uh they're going to be the most informed on these issues because they're aware of the problem, they're looking for it. It's everybody else who are on the more mainstream pa- platforms. Uh, that are going to unwittingly be deprived of information that would otherwise be part of their calculation when they're casting their vote. So huge problem. We're going to stay on it. I'm going to keep running my mouth. You know, I, I feel like in the in the 21st century, I've been you know directly involved in a lot of the, the big things that have gone on, uh, the Iraq war, uh, elections. You know, I ran for election when the first year Obama ran and ran for the United States Congress in 2008. I was involved in that election cycle and pretty much every even year election cycle after that. Um, and I want to keep, even though I'm a private citizen, I want to stay in the fight. I want to keep getting information out there to the best of my ability. I'm going to push back against this. Everybody should find a way to meaningfully push back against what is happening in our country, what is happening to our liberties, what humongous corporations and nefarious actors in the federal government, both Republican nominees and Democrat nominees. I mean, unfortunately, Trump appointed Ray, Chris Ray, uh, to, to lead the FBI. So uh, that's a bipartisan mistake right there. And Comey was supposedly a Republican, too. So it is a it is definitely a bipartisan problem. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons Tucker is not on the air anymore. He made everybody mad. He made Republicans mad. He made Democrats mad. He questioned the orthodoxy. Well, we're going to keep pushing back in our little way. I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll share this show every time you hear it with your friends and subscribe on the various platforms and find a way to push back meaningfully in your life. And as I as I wrap up that thought, perfect timing. The issues and interviews hotline is lighting up. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. We are joined on the Issues and Interviews Hotline by the pride of Staten Island, the pride of Marist College, a member of the vaunted New York State Assembly Class of 2012, Joe Borelli, City Council Minority Leader. Welcome to the show. It is wonderful, wonderful to hear your voice uh, and uh, hopefully get, get to see you soon at some point, I hope. I see you all the time on my TV, as a matter of fact. Good, good. And I always like to remember that you have some Dutchess County roots going to Marist College. What year did you graduate from Marist? Uh, 2004. I, um, I graduated in uh, class 2004, and I lived in Poughkeepsie uh, from 2000 to 2004. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Very cool. And I think we worked at some of the same bars in Poughkeepsie around that same time. I think we did we'll, too. <laughs> we'll keep that under wraps. You know, I'm a private citizen now, but you're you're a public official, so we won't mention your uh, your bar employment days. Although it's worked out very well for your New York City colleague AOC. But 
Yeah, look, she went you know, from from bar back to Congress. I mean, you know, who could who couldn't blame? I mean, who, who couldn't praise her for that? Bar back to Congress is one thing. Bar back to the intellectual leader of the American left is is really what happened, and that's the most amazing thing. I mean, she really pushed <laughs> the, the the Democrats further to the left than I think they've ever been. I agree. I totally agree. So I saw you on Stuart Varney the other day, Stuart and uh, Varney and Company on the Fox News Channel. Oh, by the way, any truth to the rumors that you're getting the 8 o'clock slot on Fox to replace Tucker? No, they're going to put someone there, but they'll probably give me the 11. Oh, okay, great. To, to great, great. That's big money. I heard Tucker was making $20 million. God bless. God bless yeah, America. Exactly. Uh, but I heard you on Varney and Company on the Fox News Channel earlier this week or last week, and you, you made a very good point. You said Trump came out in 2019 and said that uh, you know unfettered immigration and the open border and sanctuary policies are going to hurt mainly blue cities, liberal cities, and the mayors and leaders of blue cities opened the doors and made themselves more welcoming to, uh, to illegal immigrants. And now it's coming back to bite them. And New York City is a perfect example. Tell us, tell us what you meant by all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's where really the, the problem of sanctuary cities uh, f flew off the rails. I mean, the idea was certainly out there. But when Trump, uh, even in 2015, when he, when he started campaigning in 2016, when he was saying, build a wall, build a wall, uh, and, and that message actually resonated with a whole bunch of pretty reasonable people who said, hey, yeah, that, that's not a bad idea. A lot of people probably assume there was a wall, you know, as a matter of fact. Uh, so the way that these big city uh, and blue state urban leaders responded was to virtue signal by saying, we are a sanctuary city. Uh, we're going to welcome anyone. And you know what? When Trump was in charge and we were prosecuting and preventing people who crossed the border, the trickle in of migrants wasn't so bad. And if cities had to you know, absorb uh, a few hundred here and there, a city like New York could certainly do that without even, without even tripping over itself. But then the problem exacerbated when Trump was out of office and the Biden administration changed the Remain in Mexico policy, changed uh, our posturing entirely on the southern border and said everyone's welcome. Now, suddenly, sanctuary cities are a huge problem because as anyone could have predicted, where did people go? They went to the sanctuary cities. I mean, and certainly the governors of Texas and Florida, et cetera, and Arizona, um, you know, assisted them along. But this was the most predictable thing that could have possibly happened. And now we have a situation in New York City where we are actually talking about spending more on migrants uh, than the sanitation department in a year, and almost as much as the fire department. I mean, so, so people should visualize that. Every one of those big, beautiful white trucks that's rolling up and down the streets with big lumbering men and women picking up your trash every day, it costs more to house, feed, clothe, uh, tutor, instruct, ha provide healthcare for the migrants for 32,000 as of last count than it is to provide sanitation services for the entire city of 8.8 .8 million people. That's how much we're spending on. Joe Borelli, minority leader of the city council. It was not that long, long ago that we were told by the proponents of sanctuary cities and the proponents of unfettered immigration that, that illegal immigration is an economic benefit to us. We actually make money. We're more prosperous with illegal immigrants in the, uh, in the country. Uh, but now we're, we're getting a, uh, we're getting a price tag here or we're seeing the overwhelming economic costs, as you just illustrated with your example of, of the, the migrant budget being bigger than the uh, sanitation budget. What happened to that argument that this was supposed to be some kind of economic boon for us and uh, it's something we should welcome because it's going to help us economically. What happened to that argument? Look, 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 look I'm, I'm willing to concede ground. And again, maybe when the, the numbers were 
were ridiculously low of illegal immigrants coming across the border. Maybe there was. I mean, I, I don't know if there wasn't, but certainly not when you have in any city 32,000 people who are ineligible to work because we still do have some laws. They're ineligible to get a job. They're ineligible to, to really do anything. They're relying on the city government to provide every single basic function of life. This is not an economic benefit. This is an economic detriment. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those weird scenarios where if we could just turn back the clock, I, I think I think a lot of people would want to do that, not the least of which is Eric Adams, who who started by doing the same virtue signal thing. We're going to be sanctuary cities. We're, we're going we're gonna to respect these people, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then it turns out when you're the mayor of New York, you actually have to make uh, ends meet. And you can't do that when you have an unexpected $2 billion a year hole uh, on top of whatever the, the economic problems of the day are. I mean, it's just, it's just not possible. It's not going to happen. Uh, I think that's why you saw this very clear 180 uh, on, on him in terms of policy and a 180 in terms of rhetoric. I mean, he was on television bashing Biden in the migrant crisis the other day. I mean, and, and I'm one of those people who's, who's happy to see it. I'm, I'm happy to see Democrats attack each other. I'm happy to see the, the mayor talk about this, the problem honestly. That, that is good. And he said he said uh, that basically the Biden administration did this to New York City. But isn't it a bipartisan problem? I mean, for literally decades, I've been in politics almost two decades. And for decades, Washington, some people talk tough about really getting serious about the border. Um in the Republican Party. Some people were kind of for open borders in the Republican Party, and the Democrats, for the most part, have been for open borders. Isn't it a, a long-term bipartisan problem out of Washington, D.C. that got us to this point? I, I, I think so. But, but, but even the most pro-immigration Republicans have been, been sort of you know corporatist in their model, where, where they want immigration to be regulated, and it's the type of people who would work in the industries that big corporations actually need. It's not necessarily unfettered and unrestricted immigration from anywhere and in between. Um, so, there, I mean, there's, there's subtle differences. But when you've had a ping pong match between political parties who are not afraid, who are too afraid, rather, to do something that might be slightly unpopular with a group they're trying to to hold sway with, that's where we get the logjam. That's where we get the problem. I, I give Trump a lot of credit. I mean, that's why he was the first person to say, no, 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 we're going to take a definitive stance on this issue. We're going to say we're going to follow the law. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's really it. And, and the irony, by the way, is that asylum seekers had a higher rate of, of entry in the United States under Trump than Barack Obama. People don't even want to know that. The Trump administration was actually uh, a, a, a sympathetic figure to people genuinely seeking asylum in the United States for political persecution. So it's just, it's just bizarre to see uh, the, the, the situation we're in and sort of the whitewashing of history. You just touched on something very important that doesn't get enough mention, Joe. Asylum is when somebody is being targeted for political persecution in their home country. That's how you get asylum. You don't get asylum because you're in a poor country. You don't get asylum because you don't want to be in your country. That's not how the asylum laws are written. Written, But right now, we are bastardizing the asylum laws. Anybody who can get here can claim asylum, and in a couple of years, we'll, we may or may not find you and have a hearing. Isn't that a big part of the problem? Sort of the uh, ignoring the asylum laws that are on the books to get more and more people into the country who don't belong here? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is why I don't have too much blame for the migrants themselves. Uh, we, we have a shelter on Staten Island, three hotels back-to-back, uh, -back, uh, all housing migrants. And, and I've actually went there. I've, I've inspected the place. I've, I've talked to some of the people. I, I don't actually blame 
a man from Venezuela who comes with his two kids and his wife seeking a better life if he thought the opportunity was there to get in the country. I blame the problem on the laws and the process by which this guy was able to exploit. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it, a lot of these folks are desperate and, 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 I, and I empathize with them, but it's, it's more to the point that we actually need to have a system where we screen people and regulate the amount and, and from where they come in. That's just the reality. Absolutely. And it should be the, the deciding factor should be, can you bring something to the United States? Are you going to make this a better country by your presence here and bringing your family here? And are you not going to be a public charge, which is the way it was for, for 100 years or so? One of the ways this problem Joe Borelli has festered is state and city governments historically have said, well, it's a federal problem. And the federal government has kind of said, well, you got to do things at the state level. And, and they both kind of punted to each other at the different levels of government. Is there anything New York City or New York State could do to improve the situation and limit this problem? Well, I wish Adams would still send people upstate to rock some roads so they can continue on their journey to Canada. I mean, I think that was actually that was a pretty good, good plan. That was, that was a democratic uh, for, for a equivalent of sending them to Martha's Vineyard. Right, right, exactly. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, this has become a state and local issue. On, on one side, on the blue state side, you have New York, which decided to be the world's refugee camp. On the red state side, you have Texas, where they're building their own wall and doing their own border enforcement. I mean, it's a total abdication of this issue by the federal government. I mean, it, it, is, the, is the next step for us to have uh, the New York State State Department go out and, and, and negotiate deals with China? Uh, is, you know, should we actually run our own post office? I mean, if, if the federal government is just going to continue abdicating responsibility on on some of these, on some of these uh, uh, major problems, why are we even spending so damn much money, <laughs> you know, in, in, in federal taxes? Yeah, excellent point. I guess we got to pay those IRS agents. Yes, we do, and there's there's more there's more and more coming. I did I did my for the record I did my taxes on time about uh, two weeks ago. I'm good. My wife and I are good. Good, good. As far good. as I know. Um, with all these problems, so we have the normal problems of the city. New York City has the problem with you know uh, post COVID people not coming back to work in the offices, and that has a big impact on everything from delis and restaurants to every service industry and the real estate industry. Is New York City salvageable given this migrant problem, the post COVID problems, and all the normal city problems that you have with crime and and housing and everything else. Is it salvageable? Is it going to get better? Oh, I, I think it will. I mean, I, I think we've seen the pendulum swing uh, in, in both directions in New York and a lot of cities uh, nationally and globally. Um, I, I, I just, the, the question really for New Yorkers is, will this pendulum swing in my lifetime or in the lifetime of my children being children? In other words, you know, is it worth me spending the next 20 years here? Is it worth me spending the next 10 years here? Are the schools good enough? Is the community safe? Those are, those are the questions I don't know the answer to. But the answer to the question of will, will New York come back eventually? Yes, it will, 100%. Um, we are geographically in a great location. Uh, we we are still the world's epicenter of the finance industry. Uh, we still have an incredibly large base of taxable real estate, which means our government, even though we spend way too much money, can probably still support itself uh, in, in, in the very long-term future. It's just, it's just, are people willing to pay the premium that they once were? People were willing to pay the highest rent, the highest homeowner cost uh, to live here. Are they willing to pay those premiums for the next 10 years? That I don't know the yes, answer. Yes, that is a great point. My wife is born and raised in the Bronx, and she's in no rush to go to uh, any of the boroughs except for, of course, Staten Island, which is more like uh, where jewel, we live The jewel here. of the Atlantic. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Hey, we're shifting gears with the minority leader of the city council and former New York State Assembly colleague of mine. By the way, Joe, when you got married... Correct me if I'm wrong. You were not even married. Now you're a full-on family man. You get married. You have kids, mortgage, the whole thing, right? Is that right? You've had a busy ten years. The whole thing. I was. I was. 
coaching soccer this morning, but it got canceled. I mean, I am I am living the dad life. All right, that's good. How many kids you have? We have okay. two. We have Excellent. two. Boys or girls? Two boys. We just received the first communion yesterday, too. Oh, as God bless. Fact. All right. That's great. That's great. Nothing better. I, I was at, uh, uh, when I was texting you earlier, I was uh, at my son's uh, basketball game, my eighth grade son's basketball game. That, my favorite thing in my life is to go see my kids do their, either their sports or their plays and their activities. It is, it is the best. I, I didn't even understand what watching sports was about until you see your kid on the field or, or doing something. That's when that's when you really root for someone and something and a team, heart and soul. It's amazing. Yeah, it's magnificent. And everybody uh, is concerned about their children. And you mentioned how long it's going to take for New York City to turn around and what the future is going to be like uh, for those who are children now. Uh, a big decision on the future of the United States is coming up next year, 2024. Um, have you endorsed anybody for president yet or do you have any thoughts on that race? No, no, I, I haven't. I mean, I, you know, I was a, a, a co-chairman for the Trump campaign, both, uh, both election cycles, both when we won and when we lost. I'm still proud of that. Um, I still would gladly vote for Donald Trump. I, I am willing to give uh, Ron DeSantis an opportunity to, to, to hear what he has to say. Um, I'm one of those people who uh, is, a, is a big fan of the state of Florida. We're actually looking at our first uh, vacation house down there, hopefully soon. So I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to give the guy the chance. Um, I want to see really, honestly, and I I really want to see which person of those two gives us the best footing to win back the White House. And that's really the only question for me is is who's going to win. I I think both of them would do a fantastic job as president. Uh, I think both of them I might disagree with here and there, which is fine. Because uh, there's, there's no one issue that sets them apart for me. Um, so to me, it's which one has the clearer path to winning the White House. And I don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny you say that. I'd be happy with either one. I do have some concerns uh, that the Democrats are trying to lure us into supporting Trump and nominating Trump because they think that they can beat him. <clears throat> now, they did think that four years ago or six years ago now. And of course, he beat Hillary. But I am concerned after all this time, whether Trump is is still electable. Time will tell. So that is something that, that concerns me. And it's such a big decision. You always say that the, uh, oh, this presidential election is the is the biggest one of our lifetime. Uh, everyone always says that. But I really feel like this next one is. This is a this is a tipping point one way or the other for this country. Are we going to have a, a guy who, who should still be gumming his eggs and taking his kids to a baseball game? Or are we going to have, you know, one of the two people that really will change the country for the better? I, I think that's really the, 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 the binary choice we're going to be seeing in 18 months time. Very true. Last question. Joe Borelli, Staten Island, uh, born and raised. Am I right about that? You're born and raised in Staten Island? Yes, sir. What high school did you go to? St. Joseph by the Sea, home okay, of the Vikings. Okay, because I went to Providence College with a bunch of guys from Monsignor Farrell. Yeah, that's that, probably yeah, that, we, we don't get along. That's where all the smart they're, guys they're, went, uh, right? If they went to college with yeah, me, they must no. be wicked smart. <laughs> just the opposite. Just the opposite. <laughs> and uh, have you been to a Ferry Hawks game? That's the question. Have you been to the Ferry Hawks game yet well, this year? Well, their, their, their first game uh, this weekend got rained out, uh, unfortunately. So I, I have been last season and will definitely be. T- In fact, uh, my kids' school, Our Lady Queen of Peace, they're doing a uh, Ferry Hawks night. So I forget what night it is, but we'll, we'll definitely be there for that, supporting the team and supporting our school. Excellent. Excellent. I to get out there. I've been I've been to the Cyclones and we have the Hudson Valley Renegades here, but I I was never at a Staten Island Yankee games and now game and now they're the uh, Staten Island Ferryhawks. So I'll have to get out there. The view is beautiful and the beer's all right. Excellent, Joe Barrelli. We're gonna leave it right there. Perfect ending to a great conversation. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you. Take care. Good stuff. Good stuff right there from our man Joe Barrelli, Minority Leader of the New York City Council. And I mentioned this at the top of the show. Three of the five living ex presidents. Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton getting together, form a charitable organization, 
What is this charitable organization formed by three former U.S. presidents going to do? Is it going to help those with uh, illnesses related to 9-11? No, no, not that. Is it going to help disabled veterans with accessible housing or help send the children of disabled veterans to college? Nope, not going to do that. Nope. Is it going to help those who uh, had their businesses destroyed by COVID lockdowns or were impacted by all the bad decisions by the federal government and, and state and local governments um, during COVID? Nope, not going to do that. Help people who lost their jobs because they wouldn't get vaccinated with an untested vaccine. Nope, not going to do that. No. To the contrary, actually. Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton have started a non-governmental organization, NGO, in uh, Washington, D.C. parlance to fly migrants into the United States. Didn't get enough coverage. This should have been big news. Maybe because Tucker was taken off the air. This didn't get big news. But what they're going to do is they're going to, it's not every country in the world, but they're going to pay your flight to come to the United States. Uh, If you're coming from Afghanistan, Ukraine, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Now, that's that's, uh, a half dozen countries right there. You can bet that it's going to expand. You can can bet that it's going to add more countries. So what they're saying is, oh, it's expensive to get to the United States. Now, apparently the people they're going to help have a sponsor. It doesn't say that they're doing it legally, that they're going through the process. But I guess if they have a sponsor, they're going to, uh, they're going through the proper process. And, and uh, this organization founded by the three former presidents is going to help pay for that. It says it can cost $1,600 to get from, from those countries to this country. But with all the problems that we have in this country, why, why is that the priority of the people, of the three men who led this country for a quarter century and, and helped create the world that we live in now? Why is that their priority? Why are migrants, people who aren't even Americans, their priority? You want to help people who aren't Americans? Help them in their own land. Help them, in their, help them make their own countries better. Help them make their own countries more prosperous. I don't understand why that would be the focus. Actually, I do understand because that is the concern of the elites. The concern of the elites is not you and me. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time during the Bush years defending Bush policies, defending Bush, defending his ga- gaffes. And in the, in the back of my mind, I knew that they were soft, that the Bushes, Jeb, George, the whole family, the whole lot of them was soft on immigration. And they were trying to push at that time the uh, Kennedy, McCain-Kennedy bill, which was basically an amnesty to let who led uh, illegals into the country. And uh, I kind of put that in the back of my mind because we were we were in a post-9-11 world talking about, uh, you know, preventing terror attacks and things like that. And I think the Democrats probably would have been a little bit worse, John Kerry, who ran against him in the re-election. Uh, but I spent a lot of time defending Bush, and this is, this is how he's spending his retirement, paying for migrants to come in here. But wait, there's more. This organization that they're starting, whatever it's called, uh, welcome to the United States, uh, has a CFO council, CEOs, CEO council. And here's how they describe it. The CEO council is a cohort of leaders from across business sectors committed to supporting welcome.us. That's the name of the organization, welcome.us initiatives as we mobilize private sector resources to support those seeking refuge here in the United States. Co-chaired by Accenture chair and CEO, Julie Sweet, and Google CEO Sundar Pichai. And they have this page where they have this whole council of CEOs, and it's the CEOs of the biggest companies in the world, the big, huge corporations, tech companies, every kind of corporation, finance companies, the elites. It's a board of the elites of the elites who their priority isn't Americans. Their priority isn't poverty in the United States, crime in the United States, suffering in the United States. It's not curing cancer. It's not helping Americans. It's helping fly people who are not Americans into this country. While we have a border crisis, while uh, estimates say 5 million people have come in illegally, that's the priority of the elites in politics. 
And in the corporate world, and the irony, going back to the first topic, here again you have government, okay, in the case of these presidents, former government, but the senior people in the government for 24 years, coupled with the biggest, wealthiest, most powerful corporations in the world, combining not to help you, not to help me, not to help your neighbor, not to help Americans, not to fix problems, but for non-Americans to come to the country in a time when we have all these problems. Terrible. It exposes who they are and who their priority is. And we're going to be a we're going to be a voice against that on issues and interviews on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Definitely share the show with your friends on social media. Tell your friends about it. Email the link to the show. Have them subscribe. Let's grow this show. Let's get our message out there. More important than ever. More important than ever to have alternative media, to have anti-establishment conservatives fighting for you, regular people. Believe me, the big shots in Washington, probably not even your own congressman care about you. They care that you get out and vote for them. They don't care about you. They care about their reelection. I was in elected politics for 10 years. That is the number one priority. How does this vote? How does this decision? How does this comment? How does this press release impact my reelection? That is the first and foremost thought on almost every politician's mind. So we need independent voices out there fighting for you. I'm happy to be one of that. And I'm one of those. And uh, we need more. We need more. Join us next week on Issues and Interviews with Karen Michael Lawler. We'll cover big topics and we'll have a great guest. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.